Uh, welcome everybody. While we talk about uh, today uh, why we have the Bible and why that matters, especially uh, for anyone who's going to be teaching the scriptures, uh, whether it's in the context of life group especially, but even any other group uh, that we have here at Taylor's First Baptist. If uh, you've not had a chance to meet me yet, uh, I'm Nathan Finn. I serve as teaching pastor uh, here, um, part-time, co-vocational, uh, but love doing that. And, and what I primarily do is uh, lead our Equip uh, Institute on Wednesday nights, but then also step into spaces like this and, uh, and teach a little bit on different topics when asked. And since Jeremy asked, we are, we are here today. So hopefully you have a handout uh, there in front of you. And, and the way I like to do this is to just give folks uh, sort of 85 or 90 percent of what we're going to talk about so that you're not furiously taking notes. But there is space there uh, to flesh it out a little bit if you want to. And, uh, and I love to just sort of uh, talk topic by topic or section by section and then uh, pause and engage and ask questions a little bit. So that's kind of about kind of going to be the format that we use today. Uh, but before we do that, let's get started with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path. And we pray, Father, that your spirit uh, would be with us today as we talk about your word and why it's at the center of uh, everything we do in our equipped strategy here at Taylor's First Baptist. Uh, we certainly pray in these next few minutes that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures uh, would help us to think well about the scriptures uh, for your glory and for the sake of those whom we might have the opportunity to teach those scriptures to in the coming days. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Life Group at Taylor's is an opportunity uh, to not only teach the scriptures, there's a lot of ways to do that, uh, but to help all of us who might be a part of a life group to become better readers of the scriptures. Uh, something that uh, I've heard Pastor Jeremy talk about uh, several times, and I've just sort of stolen this because I think it's really helpful, is that we're not just teaching people to want to be fed the word. That's a really good thing. But we're also teaching them to be self-feeders of the Word and, and to know how to read it themselves and to engage with it themselves, whether that's in a small group or whether that's in their daily quiet time, whatever the case might be. But before we know how to faithfully interpret the Bible, we need to understand why the Bible matters. And so that's going to be our main theme uh, today. And then I think uh, in coming days, you're going to dig a little bit deeper into uh, how to read the Bible and how to interpret the Bible. So as Christians, we believe that the Bible is inspired. It is literally God's Word in written form. And what's remarkable about that is that the Bible is also a thoroughly human book. You're talking about a book that was written by dozens of different authors over about a thousand years in at least three different original languages, uh, two major languages in some parts, one other language. So it's a thoroughly human book really written by men. And yet, even though it's a thoroughly human book, it's God's words. Uh, that word inspiration uh, literally means to, to, to breathe out. Uh, and so it is both a divine book and a human book. And there's no other book like it in the world. Now, when we say that, we don't mean that the Bible is divine like God is divine. But what we mean is uh, the words in those books are God's words in the same way. Excuse me, uh, not in the same way, but they are God's words and they are humans' words. We also believe that the Bible is authoritative. When the Scripture speaks, God is speaking. And those written words carry His divine authority. And so it's not that Paul or Isaiah or uh, Moses or Peter had some sort of authority in and of themselves. It's that uh, when they are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is speaking through them. And it's God's kingdom, 
He's the creator king. He has right over everything. He's got full authority. And, uh, and just like with any earthly ruler, but to an infinitely magnified degree, his words carry authority. And that includes his written words. And so with that, what we're going to do is spend most of our time uh, looking at several key verses about what the Bible teaches about itself. We will normally drill down on one or sometimes a couple of key verses, but if you look at the handout, uh, it references a number of other passages that say the same thing. And so uh, we're really just uh, dipping our toes in the water and providing resources for some further study on this topic. So what does the Scripture teach about itself? Well, the Bible attests to its own inspiration and authority. Sometimes God's spoken words were written down and recorded by men. And there are many examples of this phenomenon in Scripture. We're just going to talk about one of them, and it's here in Exodus 24, verses 3 through 4. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Now from time to time, you may have met people who say things like, uh, you know, conservative Christians think that uh, the writers of the Bible were just robots and they're just writing down whatever God's kind of speaking in their ears and there's no personality or anything like that. That is not what we believe about the Scriptures. But there are times where God is saying, write this and they write that. So that's what we're talking about here. Uh, that's not what most of the Bible is, but we don't want to ignore the fact that the Bible sometimes literally records God's spoken words that somebody wrote down. I love this next one. In at least one case, God Himself wrote down His words, the Ten Commandments that the Lord spoke to Moses on the mountain. So we see Deuteronomy 9.10. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Isn't that an amazing verse? Now, I don't think that necessarily means that God in that moment manifests a physical finger and carves in the stone, though He may have. It's probably anthropomorphic figurative language, but what it means is those words wouldn't have been on that stone if God had not done it, <laughs> however He chose to do it. And, uh, and, and this is the way that the Bible chose to communicate it. So uh, this isn't Moses writing it down. This isn't, uh, God doesn't have a scribe hidden in a corner who's writing it down. Uh, he doesn't have angels writing it down. God is the one who produces those written words on those tablets and gives them to Moses to give to the people. Now these are two unusual examples where God is speaking and someone's writing or God Himself is giving somebody something that's been written. What we're going to begin to see uh, with these next few uh, ideas that we're looking at is more the norm of where most of Scripture has come from. So sometimes the words and writings of men are called God's words. We find this both among Old Testament prophets and among New Testament apostles. So I'm going to give you one example of each of those. Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. What Hosea writes is God's word. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The words of Paul and perhaps people who are working alongside him are called the Word of God. Now I want to pause for just a minute. When we're looking at these different passages, uh, language that you're seeing over and over again is Word of God, and, and that's a very biblical way of speaking. But you may have noticed that when I'm teaching, I often use the phrase words of God, and that's very intentional. Uh, I've become convinced over the years that sometimes uh, Word of God, we're just simply using that as a synonym for the Bible, which is true, but we kind of run through that real quick and it doesn't make us pause and think, this book is God's words. So I like to use the phrase God's words just because that's not normally the way that we talk about it. And it causes us just for a moment to have to think through that in a way that if we just say Word of God, we could just as easily say Bible or Scripture and those are all just synonyms. Does that make sense? So I like that phrase, words of God, because I think it catches us a little bit more. We don't talk about it necessarily that way, but that's exactly what we're saying uh, whenever we say that it's the Word of God. The New Testament identifies the words of Old Testament prophets with God's words. It also argues that the entire Old Testament is God's words and that He's breathed it out into written form the Old Testament is alive with God's power and changes people's lives. So we have three different passages here, and I think uh, these are going to be very familiar passages. Uh, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's Matthew 1, 22 and 23 but he's citing Isaiah 7:14. So the word of the prophet is the word of the Lord, what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And that's just one famous example. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture breathed out by God, the sacred writings. He's talking about the Old Testament. Sometimes we forget the Bible that Jesus and the apostles read was was what we call the Old Testament. And they found the gospel from Genesis. Uh, for them, it would have been Genesis to Second Chronicles with the way that uh, the Hebrew Bible was structured. But from, from beginning to end of, uh, of the Old Testament, what we would call it, that was their scriptures. And so when Paul says all scriptures breathed out by God, he's talking about the Old Testament. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love this language. Uh, The idea here is that the the Bible is a living word, if if I can use uh, 21st century language, that just cuts to the chase. Right, just slices through all the other ideas, all the other opinions, anything that's happening in the reader's life, the Bible gets right to the heart of the matter. There is a power in those scriptures that, uh, that are not present in any other book. And again, right now, they're talking about the Old Testament whenever they write those things. But that brings us to our next one, the New Testament also identifies itself with God's words, implying that the New Testament is inspired in the same way as the Old Testament. 
both the Old and New Testaments are considered the words of God. Colossians 4.16 And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So we've got these words being passed around. There's some sort of authority there. What is that authority? 1 Timothy 5.18 For the Scriptures say, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul is citing both Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7. He's taking part of an Old Testament verse, part of a New Testament verse, citing them together and calling them Scripture. Or 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, perhaps the most well-known. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter says Paul's letters are scripture. They already have a category for Scripture. It's what we call the Old Testament. So again, the force of the argument here is Peter is saying Paul is inspired just like Moses is inspired, just like Isaiah is inspired, just like David's inspired, just like those prophets are inspired. God's doing the same thing through Paul's letters that he did through those men of old. By the way, aren't you glad that Peter says sometimes there's hard stuff to understand in Paul? I mean, I'm encouraged by that. Uh, yeah, some of it's hard, but it's still Scripture. Finally, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that soon must take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. John is telling us at the beginning of Revelation, I'm writing the words of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what we see is the authors of the Bible argue that both the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, and at least some of the New Testament is the words of God. Now, they're going to come to believe all of the New Testament is the words of God. But remember, when they're writing those words, it's still being written. But what we call the New Testament, what, the, what they would have just called all those inspired writings by Paul or by John or whatever, all of it is the words of God. So let's pause for just a minute. Do any of you have any questions or thoughts about what we've looked at so far or uh, anything you're wondering about or anything that's maybe even especially encouraging about these ideas? It's the words of God. It's the, it's the words of God. And uh, I love the words that cuts to the chase. I like that a lot. Well, it sounds good in the abstract. When you're reading and you're being convicted of sin, it hurts sometimes when it cuts to the chase. <laughs> cuts right to the, right to the heart of the matter. We see next, Jesus himself argues that every word of the Old Testament is inspired. That he came to fulfill the Old Testament. That God's words will not pass away without accomplishing their purposes. And that God's words should be obeyed. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now I want to chase a rabbit for just a minute. I, uh, I don't know about the background of you brothers or, or whoever might be watching this at some point in the future. Uh, I grew up in a liberal mainline denomination where there were lots of older folks in the church when I was really young who loved Jesus, but kind of the younger you got, the further away folks had gotten from kind of clear gospel teaching. And then I went to a college that, uh, that was solidly in a conservative evangelical tradition, but it had drifted from its mission. So our Bible professors were a little bit squirrely about the Word of God. And I spent a lot of time on social media trying to translate theological ideas where uh, everyday Christians or unbelievers can understand them. And, uh, and I see a lot of arguments about Scripture that sound like the sort of things that I heard in my Christian college or that I heard in that liberal church that I grew up with, even coming from people that are parts of traditions that you would think are conservative. And I'm going to summarize what I hear a lot of those people say over what I just described, kind of a 40-year period of time up to today, uh, and it boils down to this. Uh, what Jesus says is more important than what everything else is that we see in Scripture. Uh, the red letters are what really counts, and, and the rest of that stuff, uh, especially the Old Testament, that's kind of like old tradition. We've advanced past that. Uh, we're going to follow Jesus and His moral teachings. And logically, I understand what they're trying to argue. I could see how you could get to that place based on your presuppositions. But here's the problem. Jesus won't let us go there. Because what Jesus says is that the Old Testament is the Word of God. He says none of it's going to pass away. Not even an iota or a dot or... If you have a King James, a jot and tittle, uh, he's saying that uh, down to even all the minor details that we don't think are important, every bit of it he has come to fulfill. And whatever it means that he's come to fulfill it, we're not going to debate that today. What it doesn't mean is that we have the freedom to relax any of those commandments because he tells us that. So that doesn't mean, whatever it means that Jesus is fulfilling the law, it doesn't mean, so the Old Testament doesn't matter. So God's commands have changed. So Jesus is doing something different than what was happening uh, under the period covered in the Old Testament. God's Word doesn't pass away. Whether it's His Word that was written by men now, uh, 3,000, 3,500 years ago, or whether it was his words written by men in the first century A.D., uh, shortly after the life of Christ. And we see that further reinforced with our next idea. God's words are of everlasting authority and always perfectly accomplish God's intentions. So when Jesus says God's Word doesn't pass away, we don't get to relax God's commands. He's speaking consistently with what we're getting ready to read from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Not until the Messiah comes, not until the new covenant, not until the red letters matter more than the black letters, not until the liberal Bible interpreters say, but this is what it really means, the word of our Lord will stand forever. Or Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Not only does it not pass away, it's powerful. God's authority and His power is communicated through that word, and it accomplishes everything it's designed to be accomplished. So whenever we're thinking about God's word, that necessarily raises questions. If it's really God's words and not just human words, and if this applies to what we call both the Old and the New Testament, and if we don't get to cut some of it off because it's hard to understand or because it seems foreign to our way of thinking or it convicts us or challenges us or whatever the case might be, how ought we to respond to God's words? Well, Scripture tells us that too. God's words were to be recorded, continually meditated upon, and passed down from generation to generation. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's a lot of Hebrew practice rolled up in that that sounds foreign to us. So this is what I say. It's on your mind. It's in your heart. It's ever before you. You're thinking about it. You're taking action based on it. And you're passing it down to your family and others that you have influence upon. That's the idea that he's getting at there, or at least how we might apply that idea uh, in our context where uh, we're not part of uh, large Jewish clan families. Uh, That might be how we would apply those words. Believers are to know God's words, obey God's words, and allow God's words to change their hearts and shape their actions. We see this theme throughout Psalm 119, but we're going to read the first 16 verses of Psalm 119. It's a lot of verses, but it's not a humongous group of text, and it's just all rich. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, that I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one who loves God's words, takes them to heart, and conforms the way that he lives according to those words, treasuring them, longing for God's commandments, seeing them as a good gift to His people. Blessed is that person. As an aside, uh, just in the last couple of days, I've been preparing a, uh, a talk for my class at the university 
And we're talking about the idea of flourishing. And there are two different uh, groups of Bible words in the Old Testament and the New Testament that can be translated as flourishing or thriving. And uh, one of those words is the word that we translate into English as blessed. And we think of that as kind of a spiritual word, right? Uh, God's blessings and whatnot. And, and that's a good way to talk, but it, it, it doesn't just mean uh, something like spiritual blessing. Uh, it means something like holistic flourishing. Like everything in your life is the way it ought to be when X, Y, Z. So we could read this as, I'll be very Southern, y'all are flourishing when your way is blameless, when you walk in the law of the Lord. Y'all are flourishing when you keep His commandments and seek Him with your whole heart. We want to flourish in the ways that God's designed us to flourish, and we can't do that apart from deep, faithful engagement with His Word. Believers are to trust the Bible because though it is the words of men, it is most importantly the written words of God who inspired those men to write it. So we've already read both of these verses, but they're the two most, or both passages, they're the two most important passages in the Scriptures, about the Scriptures, though. So we're going to kind of return to them one more time to sum things up. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. And then again, 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Those human words are God's words. When we teach the Scriptures to other people. We're teaching them what God says about whatever it is that we're talking about. So any questions or thoughts before we uh, spend the remainder of our time kind of summarizing big picture what we've talked about? All right. We want to flourish. We want to flourish. And we can't flourish without the Scriptures. We can't do it. All right. So let's talk a little bit about theological summary. So we've seen all the different things that the Scripture says. So how do we kind of pull that together into a 30,000-foot view of Scripture? The whole Bible, both Old and New Testament, is inspired by God and is God's written revelation of Himself and His will to humanity. The Bible is a thoroughly human book written by real people and as such bears the marks of any other piece of literature. As such, each book has its own style, its own grammar, its own emphases, and its own vocabulary. The human aspect of Scripture should never be downplayed like it is by some fundamentalists who hold to divine dictation, that God's just telling them what to write and they're writing it down. Uh, I love to talk about this. Uh, the author of Hebrews is an eloquent, eloquent writer in the Greek. Mark, not so much. Bad grammar Mark. But they're both, no matter whether it's a very eloquent human writer or a less eloquent human writer. With their personalities reflected, they're writing God's words and they're telling the same story that's coming from God. It's a thoroughly human book. The Bible is also, though, a thoroughly divine book 
written by the Holy Spirit, revealing God's words just as much as the human author's words. Every book of the Bible shares common themes and contribute elements to a common grand narrative. The divine aspect of Scripture should never be downplayed like it is by liberals who argue that the Bible is a merely human book. We want to avoid the ditch that says the Bible floats down from heaven and there's nothing human about it. And we want to avoid the ditch that says a bunch of pious people wrote down their thoughts and they were really, really sincere, but there's nothing really special about it. It is God's words in human words. And every bit of that matters if we're going to understand the Scriptures correctly. Because God inspired the Bible, it is also His authoritative written words for humanity in general and believers in particular. We are thus obligated to submit to God's words as our supreme authority for life, doctrine, and practice. Christian faithfulness in any matter is contingent upon the degree to which we place ourselves under the Bible's authority. There are lots of good little lay authorities out there, helpful Christian books that can help you grow in your life, sermons from pastors, life group lessons from teachers, uh, hymns or worship songs that we sing that are near and dear to our heart because they communicate truth. But every bit of that tradition only has authority to the degree that it reflects our supreme authority, which is Scripture. Any sermon, any hymn, any lesson, any book by a, a Christian author, those things are lowercase a authorities. They come, they, they ought to reflect, maybe a better way to say it, the capital A authority of the Scriptures. And if they don't, then we ought not to heed them. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is the confessional statement of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. That's the tradition that our church is a part of. And uh, it's a good confession of faith, but it is especially strong in what it says on the Scriptures. And so I just want to uh, sort of close my formal remarks by reading this and, and then make a recommendation to you. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and as God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. I think that is a great summary of what the Bible is and why the Bible matters. So let me close with a recommended resource, and then we can uh, talk about this a little bit more if you'd like to. Uh, my favorite book that just about any Christian could pick up and read and better understand uh, why the Bible is Kevin DeYoung's Taking God at His Word, Why the Bible is Knowable, Necessary, and Enough, and What That Means for You to Do. And uh, what he does, he's a, he's a local church pastor in Charlotte, he takes uh, all these wonderful books written by conservative theologians who are teaching in Bible colleges or seminaries, and as a pastor, he says, how can I translate all those ideas in a book that's 150 pages that uh, anybody 16 and older who loves the Scriptures can read it and understand it. And so I uh, love recommending that book, and I would commend it to anybody who's going to be a teacher of the Scriptures at Taylor's First Baptist. And as, as Jeremy says, it is provided in the pipeline. You're going to get a copy of this book in the pipeline. You're going to get a copy in the pipeline. So you'll get a few resources through this pipeline. So we will want you to have as life group leaders. 
This is one of those. Is that one of the books that they, that was when the group was here? Never mind. Oh, ten of those. Yeah. They may have had it at ten of those actually. Um, okay. But we will provide it. You'll have about you'll, you'll get three or four resources through the pipeline. This is one of them. Okay. So I just didn't want you to go purchase it today because we'll provide it. Okay. So uh, <laughs> any any questions or thoughts about the Bible? It doesn't even have to be necessarily about what we specifically talked about, but just as we're here together, uh, what are we thinking about the Scriptures as we uh, begin this journey of teaching the Scriptures to others? I guess my first thought would be um, maybe a little more technical. So how, how um, I guess, could you explain a little bit about how the, how the Bible books were selected? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. This is, a, uh, this is a good place to advertise the, uh, the Equip Institute where we, we have a whole night where we talk about that. But everybody's wondering this, right? And you can get that online. And you can get it online. Okay. It's week, on the website. Next week they'll have everything laid out, all of our resources, those kind of things and tools. It'll also have a link in it with last semester's outline of what was, what was offered through the Institute. QR code to click it. You can go right there, listen to those podcasts, watch the videos. He's right. One whole night was just for your questions. Man, fantastic. We'll get a great but, but I can say this right now. It, uh, it, uh, it was a, humanly speaking, a largely organic process, but we believe the Spirit was at work in it. So uh, sometimes our Roman Catholic friends say that you know there was some meeting that took place at such and such a time where a vote was taken, and then they didn't know what the Bible was before that vote was taken, around 400. And that's not what happened. Uh, we've already talked about they knew by the first century that the Old Testament was inspired, and they knew what books were part of the Old Testament. And so when we talk about uh, where we get our Bible from, it's even more so the New Testament and how they decide that. And by the time, you know, let's say Jesus uh, is resurrected in A.D. 30, maybe A.D. 33, but sometime around that time, Jesus is resurrected. By the time we get to when the book of Revelation was written, which was probably the last book in the New Testament, around A.D. 95, uh, at that point we have all those books. Just almost immediately after the book of Revelation was written, in the very early 100s, not even 110 yet, we start having lists of what we're going to call the New Testament floating around, and it includes our four Gospels and only those four Gospels. It includes the book of Acts. It includes the letters of Paul. It includes the letters of John and Peter. And so they already got 90% there just organically by what they were sharing and what they were talking about. So there's only ever a little bit of debate over about four books. There's debate over Revelation because they read it and said, man, that's kind of weird. Just like we read it sometimes and say, man, that's kind of weird. And there was a little bit of debate about Hebrews because they weren't sure who wrote Hebrews. And we're still not sure who wrote Hebrews. Uh, there was a little bit debate about two books, three books that didn't make it into the New Testament, but that were edifying books that they believed were good books, but they just weren't sure that they were inspired books in the same way that the New Testament was. So 90% of the debate during those couple hundred years in the early church was over uh, Revelation, and, and, and which they all liked, but again, what does it mean? They were wrestling with that then. Or over Hebrews, if it's anonymous, can we really say that that's Scripture? And, and most of them believe Paul wrote it. Most people don't believe that today, but they believe that. And then those other good books, uh, things that you may have heard of, uh, like the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, or uh, the Shepherd of Hermas, or the Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, those are good things to read. They're edifying, but they just they didn't think it was the same thing as those books that were written by the apostles. So the way that I like to say this is uh, by the early 100s, which is just two generations after Jesus was raised, and less than a generation after what we call the New Testament was complete, they already had a strong sense of which books were inspired. And they just refined that over a couple hundred years so that by the time those votes really were being taken, they weren't creating something out of nothing and saying this is the New Testament. They were ratifying what almost everybody already believed and had been practicing for generations. Does that make sense? Any other questions?
that's a fun one. How do we deal with the translation and... Yeah, that's a great one. So there's two, there's two different big picture ways, actually I guess there's three, different big picture ways to approach translations, three different philosophies. So one philosophy says we want those words in English or whatever language to, uh, to be kind of a word-for-word translation of what we see in the Greek and the Hebrew. Those are the more literal translations. Uh, and then others say, you know, we want to make sure that we get the ideas right, but sometimes an English word isn't exactly the same word that they used in the Hebrew or the Greek, but it does a better job of describing uh, what they mean. Uh, that's how we get kind of the books in the middle, uh, or the translations in the middle. And then there's just paraphrases that say kind of how do we take the big picture and, uh, and turn that into uh, something that's very understandable for people who don't have a lot of background in the Bible. But we're not translating every verse and every word as much as it's kind of blocks of thought. So if you want to think about different styles, in that first group, the more literal, you're looking at things like... Uh, the New American Standard, the uh, English Standard, Christian Standard, New King James, uh, those are all kind of over here. It's kind of middle group. You're thinking things, the NIV is probably the most popular one. Uh, over here, you're looking at things like the Living Bible or the Message or whatnot. Uh, all of them valuable in different ways. But when it comes to preaching and teaching, we want to be kind of on this end of the spectrum rather than that end of the spectrum. And if we're quoting this end of the spectrum, it's just because there's something particularly insightful that's giving better insight on what we're already studying uh, over here. So when it comes down to which translations are the best, the, uh, the general rule, once you've decided kind of why you're reading the Bible and what it's for, um, it really comes down to which ones are based on the best manuscripts that are available. And as a general rule, uh, the English Standard, New American Standard, and the even the NIV, different philosophy, uh, Christian Standard Bible, all of those are based on the earliest and most authentic manuscripts that we have access to. The King James and the New King James are based on an older group of manuscripts that don't contain some of the oldest manuscripts, if that makes sense. Uh, so as a general rule, the way I like to think about this is I think the New American Standard is the most literal translation, but it's not a lot of fun to read because it's so literal. Uh, I think the English Standard and Christian Standard Bibles are both really good go-to literal translations. I think that they are slightly more accurate to the oldest text than the New King James and the King James, but there's no doubt that the language of the King James has uh, significantly influenced Western culture and American culture, and it's beautiful, and there's nothing in it that is going to lead you astray. There's just a handful of words here and there where we think there's a better word to say based on a later manuscript than what we found in the, the New King James and the King James. But none of them are going to lead you astray. We just want to avoid uh, people having a steady diet of this stuff over here. Because if you go in a Christian bookstore, if those still exist, or you go in Barnes & Noble, uh, they're all up there together. So folks need to sort of know what they're going for. You know, if, if an 11-year-old boy who doesn't have a background in church grabs a King James Bible, he's going to be really confused. I'm not going to be confused. He's going to be really confused. Um, if somebody uh, who really wants to grow in Christ and take the Scriptures seriously grabs a copy of the message, that's not going to do what they need. And so that's why I think there's just a lot of value in helping folks to understand what are those different translations, what are they trying to accomplish, uh, to what degree uh, are they most helpful and, and give some guidance and those sorts of things. Now it's on your phone. And yeah, if you, if you right. Your phone, there's 70 translations. That's exactly I mean, right. <laughs> there is a ton of stuff that you, you can pick through and uh, I guess that, that people could get confused with. Oh, 100%. So Nathan, how do you, in a short answer, ha. Okay, ha. Ha. Okay. And they only believe the King 
Okay, King James only sort of background. And in having any conversation, not trying to argue, just telling what I believe, how do you approach people like that when they say you're wrong and you step outside the King James Version? What do you say to them? Yeah, short answer. Um, I'm not sure how valuable it is to do more than just a little bit of arguing over that issue. Because uh, if somebody is fully convinced that the King James Bible was the only English Bible we should be using, unless they're calling me a false teacher for using something else, I'm going to argue with them a little bit and then say, but brother, it doesn't matter. It's the Word of God. Just go teach the Word of God. You know? That's what I do. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know. It's not a mountain worth dying. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, there is a longer answer. If, if you go on our website, there's a talk I gave for the Equip Institute back in the spring on, a, I think it was called, What the Bible Teaches About Itself. What does the Bible say about itself? It was some of the things we mentioned here, but some other stuff as well. And I got this question from the audience because we have a lot of folks in our church that have grown up in those sort of circles. And I spent more like eight or ten minutes answering that question and kind of um, critiquing the King James only and, and describing how we got there. Not how we got the King James Bible, but how we got the King James only view, which has only been around since the late 1960s. It's very, very recent history that the King James only view was there, and uh, and and so I would, you know, because my argument, I don't want to say I don't like using the word argument, but mine back to them, it was translated. Oh yeah, sure, I mean, so, sure, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I also I, I will I will share this story real briefly. Uh, you know, we're here in the same community as Bob Jones University and uh, have a lot of members of our church that have been through there right now. And our college, right after this, I'm going to our college ministry, and half the kids in our college ministry are from BJU. And uh, when this controversy erupted in the 1960s, one of the savviest institutional moves I've ever seen was made by Bob Jones because it divided their constituency down the middle. King James only, or we can use other translations. And, uh, and, and this King James only group was saying, you know, Bob Jones, we need you to go on record being King James only. Bob Jones adopted an only King James policy. Not King James only, only King James. They said King James translation is the only translation we're going to require our students to have for their classes, and we're going to ask our chapel speakers to use it. But they did not teach it was the only translation. <laughs> and so by that, by that the savvy middle path, they satisfied everybody because the, for the most part, the King James only said, all right, they're only using the Word of God in their classes and in their chapel. And then their professors would uh, get in class and they'd say, now listen, let's talk about the manuscript. So they were teaching what you would have heard in places that weren't King James only. Very, very savvy move. So, hey, thank you all for your time today and uh, best wishes with the pipeline.